Welcome to a new episode of In the National Interest. I'm Jacob Heilbrunn, the editor of The National Interest, and my guest today is John Deutsch, an Emeritus Institute professor at MIT, former director of energy research, deputy secretary of energy, as well as deputy secretary of defense and director of central intelligence in the Clinton administration. I'm talking to Professor Deutsch today about his recent article in the National Interest called COP28's Nuclear Energy Promise is Still a Long Way Off. John, could you tell us why is it a long way off? Well, uh, the reason that it's a long way off is that the uh, requirements for countries uh, adopting nuclear energy broadly at the level that was proposed at the Conference of the Parties COP28 at Dubai are not being met. The most important barrier is that the cost of nuclear power, the the cost of building nuclear power plants is way, way higher than what would compete with alternative sources of uh, electricity. When you say that it's higher, could you give us a sense of how much higher and why? Well, in the United States, the two uh, units which have most recently been built are like $17,000 or $20,000 per kilowatt capacity, while the range which would make nuclear power uh, competitive with, let's say, natural gas or uh, so many of the renewables would be a capital cost for building those reactors between $3,000 and $5,000. If you want me to go on a little bit about this, uh, in 2022, there was some optimism that the new generation of reactors in the United States, so-called small modular reactors, would be more uh, easy to build at lower cost and would be a financeable by many utilities so that it was possible at that time to imagine that we were at an inflection point where nuclear uh, nuclear plants would be built in the United States once again. However, in the meantime, events have happened that none of those expectations look like they've come to pass for, for small modular reactors. So right now, we do not have confidence. There's not evidence that these reactors can be built in the United States for uh, the, in the range of costs which would be necessary to have them adopted at large scale. Let's take a, a look at the past. Do you think that nuclear power got a bum rap because of Three Mile Island? No, uh, I don't think that nuclear power got a bum rap, and it was much. It was more than uh, just Three Mile Island. There were other, as you know, two other very serious nuclear accidents across the globe. Uh, it was also because uh, the price, the costs of electricity from nuclear power, building new nuclear power plants, went through the roof. And starting in the, you know, I guess in the late eighties, late seventies, and early eighties, nobody, no utility had the willingness to invest the billions of dollars necessary to build big nuclear power plants. So it was a combination of the worries about safety, the worries about waste management, and the fact that there were alternatives available, basically low-cost natural gas electricity generation. Today, people's concern with climate have made them more willing to balance those risks with the risks of uh, nuclear energy. Though not in Germany. Well, certainly not in Germany, but uh, France, I think, has got more uh, enthusiasm for uh, nuclear power. So does uh, England, but we're now talking about few plants, six, seven, eight, not the number that was being suggested in Dubai at COP28 of tripling the amount of nuclear power by the year of 2050 uh, across the globe. 
that would require the adoption of nuclear power plants by many uh, so-called embarking countries who are embarking on nuclear energy and do not have the infrastructure that Europe or the United States or Japan has for nuclear power. If I understood your quite meticulous article correctly, you have apprehensions not about American expansion of nuclear power, but simply maintaining what we have. You write that we face immediate challenges, including extending the lifetime of the existing fleet, establishing a record of declining unit reactor overnight capital costs, and adopting a stable system for comparing the cost generation alternatives to extend the lifetime of the existing fleet. And finally, you point out of the existing fleet of 93 reactors, they have an average age of about 42 years. Where does this leave us? <laughs> well, uh, first of all, it's, uh, it is true that the principal uh, challenge for the United States today is to make sure that the existing fleet remains in operation because there's a fleet which is operated with very high availability for producing its power and a very good safety record. But they're getting old. 42 years of uh, was much beyond their initial proposed lifetime. To uh, extend that lifetime, they have to go to the Nuclear Regulatory Commission and get uh, agreement that their plants are safe enough to extend to be used for more years. But eventually, uh, they will have to be retired. So the federal government and state governments have taken uh, steps to make it easier for those reactors to extend their lives and to operate. Uh, notably, in the uh, Inflation Reduction Act, there was uh, um, efforts to help existing reactors. One of the problems with this, and this now gets to be highly technical, and I don't want to impose on our listeners by getting too technical, there are rules about trying to encourage renewable energy, which say that if you're a uh, operator of a system, you must must dispatch wind and solar as the first elements on the on the line to be used rather than nuclear but nuclear has the unique feature of being available all the time, 12 months a year, 24 hours a day. And so they sometimes do not get dispatched and therefore have a problem of having enough revenue from electricity use to uh, manage their econ economics satisfactorily to keep the plants going. So there's a issue also of rate design to make sure that nuclear is carried on a fair basis with respect to renewable power. And that's happening, but it's happening slowly. And there are many different ways it might happen. But a solution to that problem would also help a great deal over the future. Another hot button political issue, obviously, is disposing of nuclear waste. How do you think we would deal with that? Well, uh, when you say it's a hot button item, it's no longer a hot button item. I think people have seen now a couple of decades of uh, good operation of nuclear power, much greater concern with climate. So they are willing to say, well, we'll find a way going forward for ultimate disposal of the waste. And in the meantime, uh, the nuclear the used nuclear fuel will be either stored on the site of the reactor or moved to uh, away from reactor storage sites and kept there potentially for many, many decades or years, hundreds of years until a uh, ultimate underground disposal system has been developed and put in operation. I think there's much greater calm about nuclear waste. That comes because of the recognition of the contribution nuclear can make nuclear power to our climate challenge.
You mentioned in your article the Inflation Reduction Act and the Bipartisan Infrastructure Act establishing production tax credits and investment tax credits to, to delay further retirement of nuclear reactors. How effective do you think those provisions are? I think they've been very, very effective. The number of anticipated retirements is down from what they were before. But again, uh, those reactors are getting older. They have to go to the NRC for life ex life extension. And at some stage, I think there would be a concern about running these reactors for 80 years or something like that. So I believe that the measures have been well thought out and introduced properly, but it's not a solution to the nuclear issue that we're talking about now, reducing sufficient nuclear energy for the um, future. I mean, contributing more than the 18% that is currently fraction that nuclear provides for United States nuclear, but all the way up to 40% or something like that across the globe. I wanted to talk to you about another issue involving nuclear energy, specifically uranium enrichment. The former Deputy Secretary of Energy, Dan Poneman, has been talking a lot about the lack of uranium enrichment capacity in the United States and that we essentially outsourced a lot of it, primarily to Russia. Do you have concerns about that? Somewhat, but it's that is a uh, a complicated current issue. The uh, Department of Energy has uh, advanced two kinds of nuclear reactor programs. One called Gen Three, Generation Three nuclear reactors, which uses nuclear fuel, which is enriched up to no more than five percent, and then another set of reactors called Gen Four reactors that have higher assay in their enrichment, up to nineteen percent, and that makes a great difference in terms terms of the cost of operating the reactors and how you get that enriched uranium. At present, the only country which produces that level of enrichment for Gen 4 reactors is, guess who? Our great friends, Russia. So uh, if you, we don't, and we certainly don't want to have a dependency only on them, and the question is, where is the new highly enriched uranium going to be made? Now, Dan Poneman, who was a former CEO of a company called Centris, which is seeking to have contracts from the government to build this initial amount of highly enriched or high assay enrichment of uranium, is uh, urging the country to build such uh, enrichment capacity. And I believe there have been some parts of the recent legislation in, in Congress which have actually made some beginning on those. There are other options that you could have. You could make an, an arrangement with the European Enrichment Consortium, which owns actually a plant within the United States, to uh, pay them to do this enrichment. But right now, it is something which is a big barrier to costs uh, for uh, Gen 4 reactors, and there's not a fixed solution, but there, one is on its way. The Centris plant is in uh, Piketon, Ohio. Yes. Do you think that that's the road we should go down of building these facilities rather than relying on other nations, or does it not matter? Well, uh, it, it matters, but I believe that it can be arranged. Frankly, uh, I trust French reactors, the European enrichment people, as much as you know. I trust a lot of things, so I think it could be arranged to be both. But I don't see why there shouldn't be competition between the two. You know, we're the only country where enrichment is in the private sector rather than a government-run operation. I believe it was a mistake in the Clinton administration to agree to having the enrichment industry set aside as 
as a private sector operation rather than leaving it within the government responsibility. Because what you have when you're in the international marketplace is you have one private company, the United States, one country with private sector enrichment, competing with other countries where they can change their pricing depending upon government policy and subsidies in a way that a private sector company could not. So I think that the old system where enrichment was part of the U.S. responsibility is a much, much more prudent approach. I, I'm a believer in the free market, but on this one, I'm scratching my head a little bit. Yes, sounds, well, that's, that's, that's exactly right. That's exactly the right way to say it. It almost sounds like neoliberalism run amok, but how did this occur? I'm just curious, historically. Well, it actually occurred when I was in the first Clinton administration, but uh, I think a lot of it was that the, the willingness of uh, the uh, U.S. enrichment system to pay the electricity rates which were required to do the enrichment, uh, they thought, the, co the companies thought that it, they could probably do a better job, get more money if they were private sector organization. So uh, that's what I think was the motivation, but I'd have to go back and inform myself better about why we were kind of bamboozled on the subject when it came up. It is an important subject. To be honest, I was quite taken aback by this. Do you anticipate that the uh, federal government will continue to subsidize nuclear energy and that major additional support will come? Or do you think it's do you think we've gone beyond that? Well, I think uh, there are two reasons why I'm, I'm concerned about that. The first is the government has put a good deal of money in nuclear power support uh, over the last five, 10 years, including in the IRA and including uh, in giving very significant loan guarantees and support to Gen 4 reactors, to Gen 4 reactors in particular. And I believe that after the amounts, the large amounts of money going for the infrastructure and innovation efforts around climate change, that the uh, appetite for Congress to give much greater or additional continuing support for nuclear power is very much in doubt for the, you know, for the next few years at any event. Nuclear energy has been one of the few bipartisan issues in Congress, interestingly enough. Do you anticipate that regardless of who becomes president in 2024, that the support will be there in Congress? Well, I, I haven't, I wouldn't characterize it as being bipartisan. I would say Congress is divided between people who are for nuclear energy and people who are against nuclear energy. It just doesn't happen that that division doesn't happen to be on a bipartisan basis. So uh, it's more, I don't think it's so much who the president is as who the, the committee, what the committee composition will be in the Senate, the House, both on the authorizing and on the appropriating side. But this problem cannot be solved with only public dollars. Public dollars are necessary, but not sufficient. And uh, when I say that, I mean the eventually this comes down to the ability of people who are building these reactors to build them at a cost which is affordable in the marketplace for clean energy. Let me ask you as a, as a final question in your article for, for the national interest called COP28's nuclear energy promise is still a long way off. You point out that the United States not only has the largest deployment of nuclear reactors in the world, but also a history of leading the world in nuclear technology. Do you expect us to remain the leader in nuclear technology? Are we doing the right things? Well, that is a challenge. It's difficult to remain in the lead if you're not building any of these reactors. And so I do think that there are several places where uh, there will be competition uh, for, for the traditional leadership of the United States in nuclear energy. Competition certainly from China, 
competition from Europe, some competition from uh, South Korea and Japan. Uh, but let me say here, this goes all the way back to President Carter and his efforts on non-proliferation. Having the United States be in a leadership technical position with respect to nuclear power is a, an essential element of the non-proliferation policy of the country. John Deutsch, former head of the CIA and the Clinton administration, thank you for your cogent remarks. I encourage anyone who is listening to look at his piece in the National Interest, which appeared on January 2nd, 2024, on nuclear energy. And I also encourage you to look back at his article on the deep state, which debunks the notion that there is some kind of nefarious conspiracy taking place in Washington, D.C. to undermine the United States. I thank you again, John, and hope we can talk again about some of these issues. I look forward to it and thank you. Thank you.